The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. This week, we're going to take a look back at Earth Day that uh, just passed last week and cover things relating to the fact that Earth Day has been really hijacked by the climate alarmists. But a lot of people don't know the origination of Earth Day, and I live only a couple hours from what kicked it all off. On June 22nd, 1969, uh, a railroad car going over a trestle over the Cuyahoga River fired some sparks into the oil-filled water, and the river caught on, and it caught everybody's attention. And that really coalesced for the uh, senator from Wisconsin, Gaylord Perry, he actually originated the idea of having an Earth Day, and he named uh, it to be on April 22nd, which is kind of interesting. Uh, It happens to be the birthday of Vladimir Lenin, April 22nd, 1870, And there are an awful lot of people that think that isn't a coincidence. Gaylord Perry was quite the uh, leftist and very likely admired uh, Lenin and other communists that came after him. But the the real story, there's no question, that's the fact if that was his intention. But one of the interesting things that people do not know, that while that fire on June 22nd, 1969, really sparked, to make a pun here, sparked the idea of Earth Day. It was actually the 18th recorded fire on the Cuyahoga River since 1868. So it wasn't new, but it didn't seem to bother people until the uh, year of 1969, and it it got the whole thing going. And today we're going to talk about uh, how Earth Day has really been hijacked by the climate change alarmists. I mean, certainly there were, uh, when it all started 51 years ago, there were environmental issues that needed to be addressed, and most of them have been addressed now. But now it just seems it's all about climate change, which is the biggest fraud ever perpetrated on society. And along the way today, we're going to talk about what is truth? We're going to talk about the word unequivocal. We're going to talk about consensus. And of course, the 97% number, all of us know. Let's get going. Yeah, sure. You know, one of the things I think environmentalists should be really concerned about 
is when the climate scare eventually becomes completely discredited and the public know this, I mean, it is discredited now, but the public don't generally know it. But once everyone knows it, I think it's going to actually risk throwing the whole environmental movement down the drain. From that point of view, I think you're right. They really should divorce themselves from the climate scare because everyone who's associated with it will be disgraced. And the environmental movement, I mean, it has some elements of it that are worthwhile. And so, you know, really, Jay, I think that they've got to kick these crazies off the stage or I think that the whole thing's going to just tank. What do you think? Well, I, I think that's true, but I'm afraid it's too late. Uh, the environmental movement has been taken over entirely by uh, radical leftists that uh, care less about the environment than promoting a, a socialist government, their own power. Uh, you know, uh, most of the environmental groups, let's go to animals. I'm always interested in the people for the ethical treatment of animals. They're an environmental group. They've done horrible things. I remember up in Maine, they let 8,000 minks that were in a mink farm go out into uh, the woods. They had been lived in captivity had no way of uh, coping in the natural environment. They all died. So uh, they don't really care so much about animals. They, they care about uh, a political movement. So I, I think you're right, but I think it's too late. I think the environmental movement is, is not going to be able to go back to what it once was. The idea of an Earth Day in uh, April 22nd of 1970 really helped the EPA get going looking at the issues. And I was worked with the EPA as a blue ribbon consultant for the entire decade of the 70s. And we took Earth Day very seriously. And we worked on legislation to protect our drinking water, to uh, protect the way we disposed of waste, to protect our agricultural chemicals, the way we mine. We really did some great work in the 70s. But by 1980, the environmental zealots have taken that over as well. And they're probably the strongest group of the deep staters in our current administration that really thwarted uh, Trump's hopes uh, to, to do even more than he did. And what he did was, was amazing. But they were so powerful. He tried to do things with climate change, and th they really made it impossible for him. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because people tend to also forget that the forecasts of the environmentalists concerning climate change, they really just haven't come true. So, you know, we wrote an article about that last week, where in fact, we went through them and actually discussed how these things are just simply not happening. You know, Jay, just going back to one point, and that is the idea that there's a consensus of world scientists that we face a climate crisis. I'd like to talk to you about that. Consensus has no place in science to begin with. Well, yeah. And but before we talk about that, you know, it's worth drilling down to some of these surveys a little bit to see, you know, did they really accomplish what they were trying to accomplish? And it's interesting because I have two examples here that show that really they're not asking the right question. And they're also not asking enough people or the right people. One is a 2009 article by Zimmerman and Doran, and that was published in the Transactions of the American Geophysical Union. And here's what they said, Jay. 97% of climate scientists agree. And then what they agree to is this, global temperatures have risen and humans are a significant contributing factor. Well, of course, even if that were true, that's not the question. The question, as I said earlier, is are we causing dangerous climate change that's worth trillions of dollars to restructure our infrastructure? 
Well, it turns out not only that, but in the total of 3,146 scientists who responded to the survey, they chose to use only 79 of them. <laughs> and so here's another example. John Cook, an Australian-based blogger, he looked through all kinds of uh, abstracts and peer-reviewed papers from 1991 to 2011. And here's his conclusion. He said the abstract of these papers reads, among abstracts expressing a position on anthropogenic global warming, 97.1% endorse the consensus position that humans are causing global warming. Well, again, that's not the real question, but they actually debunked his study in another way. In a magazine called Science and Education in August of 2013, Professor David Legates, remember he's from the University of Delaware, he actually reviewed these same papers as did Mr. Cook, and he found that out of the total number of papers, only 41 papers of all 11,944 abstracts actually expressed an opinion <laughs> at all. Not only not endorsing, but even expressing an opinion. So, you know, we really look at these surveys and they, they don't really mean a great deal. You hear these national science organizations speaking out and saying, oh, this is the case, but they generally don't poll their members and show that a majority of the members even agree with the organization's statements. So the polls really, on first glance, they look good, but when you drill down a bit, they're silly. But even still, even if they were good polls, even if they actually did ask the right question and the right people and enough people, you're saying that it wouldn't really matter anyway. Well, actually, it's a lot simpler than you're putting out all the, the data and going into the studies. Uh, everybody's common sense should tell them that you take any group and you couldn't get 97% of them to agree on anything. Uh, the fact that these people have chosen this absurd number should tell folks with common sense it isn't possible. Now, I've been polling people on human-caused uh, climate change actually for the last... 30 years. I mean, I've been involved in it that very long. And I've found that about half the population thinks man likely has something to do with the temperature of the planet. And the other half thinks they do not. But basically, all of them are not worried about it being a threat to life on Earth. Uh, the, there, there was a terrific poll. There is a poll taken uh, every couple of years in, uh, in, in Denmark on what are the major problems of the whole world. And they, they list 17 topics. I mean, obviously, we have poverty, we have uh, famine, we have waste disposal, adequate drinking water, things like that. And climate change for the last decade has come out last of 17 topics. So uh, this whole thing of people going around, uh, the, the, the lady in Congress saying we have 12 years, probably now 10 years because of climate change. Uh, it's sheer insanity. And I really think the average American has way more common sense uh, to accept that. Now, Earth Day was just a few days ago. And actually, uh, the day before in the middle of Ohio on uh, April 21st, we had five inches of snow at my house. And in fact, it's been snowing all over the country, a fairly late snow in April. Uh, I think most people chuckle about uh, man-caused global warming. The whole idea of these polls doesn't really make a lot of sense, really, because, I mean, consensus is not a, tool, not a tool of science, is it? No, it certainly is not. 
it's been bothering me for years. In fact, we're going to do a series of articles based on uh, the very famous uh, Mike, Michael Crichton, author of uh, numerous terrific books, Andromeda Strain, Jurassic Park, and the producer of ER, the very award-winning television show. Uh, Michael passed away in 2008, but he was uh, actually a medical doctor who did not practice, but he used his medical training uh, in his book. And he gave a series of lectures uh, between 2003 and 2005. He passed away in 2008, in, in which uh, one of his prominent topics was consensus. And he quoted, and I'll, I'll read his quote, that historically the claim of consensus has been the first refuge of scoundrels. It's a way to avoid debate by claiming that a matter is already settled. Now, he said that in 2003, and aren't the, isn't the public hearing it almost every day from the climate alarmists? Oh, yeah, exactly. And, and I'd just like to read the, the rest of that quote. The work of science has nothing whatever to do with consensus. Consensus is the business of politics, you know, et cetera. And, and I think that that's really what the politicians are doing. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised that they're using consensus to try to bludgeon us into obedience. You know, uh, I do a study of the history of science. It's kind of a hobby of mine. And it turns out that the greatest scientists in the world were ones who not only didn't go along with consensus, they challenged it and made uh, fabulous discoveries. Joseph Lister came up with the germ theory that said doctors need to be washing their hands when they move from one room to another. In fact, they at times would go from a morgue into a birthing room and they had no idea about germs. It actually took Lister 50 years until the germ theory was accepted. An issue that probably our listeners are more aware of that, uh, you know, you have a stomach ulcer. It was said, well, you have a type A personality. It was all the way you live, the way you acted. And it took two scientists in Australia about 15 or 20 years ago to find out, no, it was a bacteria in your gut. They found out the heliobacteria was in every single person they examined that had an ulcer. This oh, has yeah. been going on forever. And consensus really works against science because if you can convince people that if enough people believe a certain thing, they don't need to work anymore to learn more about that subject. So it's a shortcut, I guess, for most people to not have to do their homework. You know, there's one quote from Albert Einstein that I think is worth reading. And by the way, you actually met Einstein, didn't you? I did. I, I sort of knew Einstein, and I, I, I'd probably brag about it over and over again. But I was at Princeton during the last two years of his life. I was a student, and his path to his office and my path to a classroom crossed quite frequently. I was 17 years old, and we definitely had a nodding acquaintance, and it has uh, driven my son <laughs> crazy forever that I never struck up a conversation with him. But he knew me, and I knew him, and that's pretty exciting. Oh, yeah. So did he seem like a nice guy? Yes, very, very casual. All of the pictures of him that have crazy hair, they're true. <laughs> he was... <laughs> 
He was an unmade bed. He was really. Uh, well, it's funny, you know, I heard that he relied on his wife to help him get ready for trips. And one trip he made to a major university, he was giving a talk in the front of the audience and uh, his wife hadn't been there to help him get ready. And then suddenly everybody started murmuring around the audience, passing around a little piece of information. It turned out he wasn't wearing any socks. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't so, yeah. No, yeah. yeah, he's cute. There's a really neat book by Clark, uh, a biography of Einstein. It's about four or five hundred pages and it's, it's really quite wonderful. Yeah, yeah, he's he's certainly one of my heroes, that's for sure. But here's what he said in response to a German book that was put out in 1931. The book was called A Hundred Authors Against Einstein. And of course, they were objecting to his theory of relativity. He responded like this. He said, why 100? If I were wrong, one would have been enough. <laughs> so that that really sums it up, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it does. doesn't matter. You know, I want to go back for a second to Earth Day and the the claims every year you hear predictions of what is going to happen to certain environmental issues 10 or 20 years down the road and they're all wrong i mean they have there has never been a doom and gloom prediction made by these climate alarmists these environmental alarmists that has ever come true they're basically to strike fear into the people who read or hear them, uh, listen to them, so that these people can uh, put across something they want to happen in the world. Right now, it all deals with trying to eliminate fossil fuels by scaring you that carbon dioxide emissions are going to raise the temperature of the planet and make it uninhabitable, which is so incredibly stupid. People rarely go north for a vacation unless they're skiers. They go south. Everything, yeah. everything is really a little better when things are warmer. Very few people wish for more, more cold. So, again, common sense should make people not believe what's going on. And I actually think that is, that is happening. I really don't think the public is buying what you're reading in the media. I don't think they buy the Green New Deal. I think you're, you hear it and, and read it, see it every day in the media. I don't think the public is accepting it. And I'm also very optimistic. Uh, in two years, this administration will do a lot of bad things to our country, but I think they're going to lose control in the next election cycle in 2022, because I think uh, in every district in America, the people running against the Democrats are going to have a platform of focusing on the, on all the ridiculous things they're doing and the, the money that they're pouring down the drain rather than really addressing real problems that the country may have. Yeah, and I think that's a point of view that actually is probably shared all over the world. I mean, the United Nations did a poll a few years ago. It was called My World, and people can look it up on Google. My World, and they asked people to prioritize a whole lot of issues and climate change, even though they listed it first, it was, it's kind of interesting. They were obviously trying to get people to choose it as the first and most important issue. But even though they listed it first, the nine million people that voted, they voted it dead last. And they put things like education and clean drinking water and all that first. And I found it interesting, Jay, that the only countries that put climate change even in the top five were countries that were well off and they had already 
satisfied their needs for peace and good water and good food and things like that. I mean, when it really comes down to it, if you don't have proper food, if you don't have enough water, you don't care about climate change. I mean, good grief. So yeah, I think you're, you're really right. You know, Jay, one quick point here. Uh, Crichton made a point at the, at the end of his speech. He said that as the 20th century drew to a close, the connection between real science and public policy became increasingly elastic. Now, I didn't really understand that statement. Could you explain that a bit? Yes, I think he realized, and, and it amazes me because that speech was, uh, I believe, 2003 or four. Uh, he was really ahead of his time in recognizing that science became a thing to prop up policies that people in government wanted. I'd have to almost go back uh, to 1950 when I thought science was really pure and all scientists were ethical and they reported all their uh, results. And what Crichton saw the turn of the century was that scientists were willing to shape their results uh, in accordance with uh, policies that politicians wanted or, or they wanted. And that elasticity was the meaning was that the reality of the facts and data got stretched. I mean, you could stretch the data to work on your behalf. And this really did start, unfortunately, following the fabulous job that our scientists did under government supervision to create the atomic bomb that ended World War II. And that government science project was so successful that the science director under Eisenhower, Vannevar Bush, convinced Eisenhower to set up science agencies in the government and essentially move research from the private sector into the government. And then we started doing science research that would support things that the government wanted to do. So oh, I see. I see. Yeah, Crichton was absolutely correct, and it's gotten worse and worse. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. One of my sisters used to work in the government as a researcher here in Canada. She was told one day to go and find some evidence for a particular political statement, and she went and she couldn't find it. it and uh, But they really pushed her hard. And what she told me later I thought was kind of cute. She said, you know, it's really not evidence-based decision-making. It's decision-based evidence-making because <laughs> they decide on what they want to do, and then they go and look for evidence. If you search far and wide, you can probably find evidence for practically anything. So, yeah, it sounds like that's the, the connection between real science and public policy is pretty elastic now. <laughs> well, well, there are three other points I want to go back to. One, when you mentioned that the, the surveys that are done by various professional societies are not really surveying their membership. Uh, they're, they're just dictums put out by the boards of directors of these organizations. And if you look across the board at almost any science society, whatever the discipline is today, the people that are running them are truly leftists. They are so liberal. Uh, there's a lot of psychological reasons for that happens, but there, there simply are no Science societies today run by, I don't care if it's physics or chemistry or mechanical engineering, there are none that are run by uh, conservatives. So they're putting out a statement trying to make you think it's their membership. And as you said earlier, it is absolutely 
not their membership uh, doing this. Yeah, exactly. So these are just political statements put out by the leaders of these organizations without actually consulting their members in many cases. Yeah, and it gets worse because academic, everybody knows that they're, they're, you could count the non-liberal universities and colleges in the United States on the fingers of one hand. Academic uh, have all don't ask me why. Uh, for some reason or other, they're not happy with the country. They literally teach socialism. They don't teach civics anymore. It's in, in our high schools. It's in our colleges. And if you're not involved with what's going on in terms of a science department pandering to the government, you had better keep your mouth shut if you want to keep your position. You might be a history professor and disagree with uh, global warming, but if the people in some science department are promoting the alarmism, uh, you better not talk about it. So we have the problem in the professional societies, which are all left-leaning, and you have the problem in the universities where if you don't agree, you, you better not say anything. Yeah, exactly. Now, this brings up another point that I think is really misrepresented in all the debate about climate change. And that is the UN's claim that the science backing the climate scare is, to quote them, unequivocal. And you know what that means, of course, is statements that cannot be wrong. And I'd like to read to you a quote from one of the very most important documents the UN has ever put out on climate change. It's the fourth assessment report, synthesis report. This summarizes the other working group one, two, and three reports. And they said this, Warming of the climate system is unequivocal, as is now evident from observations of increases in global average air and ocean temperature, widespread melting of snow and ice, and rising global average sea level. Now, of course, it's pretty goofy saying that they're observing anything that's an average, because, of course, the observation of averages doesn't make any sense. That's a calculation based on thousands of observations. But, you know, the whole concept that warming or the observations is unequivocal. Does that really make any sense? You know, just as we said, the word consensus has no place in science whatsoever. The word unequivocal has no place in science. It may have a place in math. You can solve a math problem and know you are precisely correct. In science, you're only searching for the truth. You really can never, mostly can never get there. I mean, even people are still trying to disprove Einstein's theory of relativity. There are people trying to come up with a new theory of gravity. Nothing in science is unequivocal. It is a search. You want to get closer and closer to what is correct. And for a while, you accept a certain theory or a certain uh, hypothesis as being correct. But it's never unequivocal. And and it's difficult even to use the word truth relating to science. Yeah, exactly. And you remember when the theory of continental drift was first proposed, the scientist who proposed it was disgraced in the field. And people thought he was just an idiot. And it wasn't until, I believe, after he died that they actually realized that it was actually true. So, I mean, consensus in those days was that continental drift was impossible. And it was somebody who went against consensus who actually said, no, it actually is real. And he was right. You know, it's interesting, Jay, I reached out to two philosophers on the opposite side of the global warming argument. Dr. Wojcik from Virginia, 
He has a PhD in logic and philosophy of science. And also I reached out to Stephen Goldman, professor of philosophy at Lehigh University in Chicago. And by the way, he teaches a really outstanding course. It's called Science Wars, What Scientists Know and How They Know It. And it's on Audible. It's one of the great courses. I'll include the link to this in the description of our interview today, because, wow, it's an incredible course. But I asked both of these two philosophers, Goldman and David Wojcik, I asked them, did this statement by the UN uh, about unequivocal, remember the UN said, warming the climate system is unequivocal. And here's what they said in response. Goldman said, it is an attempt to persuade extra logically. Strictly logically, no observation can lead to an unequivocal interpretation. <laughs> and he agrees with the climate scare, but he says the statement by the UN in one of the most important documents doesn't actually make sense. And here's what David Wojcik said. He said, reasoning from evidence is inductive logic. As for unequivocal, that's never the case in inductive logic. And so it sort of is sad to see that Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I really respect, and I'm enjoying one of his books actually right now, he said, the good thing about science is that it's true, whether or not you believe in it. But that doesn't make sense either, does it? It does not. And I, I love the contradiction between Goldman and Wojcik that you, uh, you just read, which I want to go back and make another comment on continental drift, because I actually lived right at the time when it flipped from a bunch of kids noticing that a map of the world, you could slide all the continents together, like in a jigsaw puzzle. And people said, gee, it looks like North America, South America, Africa, Europe, would fit together in a puzzle and everybody would laugh at the kid. Well, I was a student at Princeton. In, uh, in fact, it was pretty much the same year that I had an acquaintance with uh, Einstein that my, one of my professors announced that now uh, continental dr drift had been, had been proven. And Alfred Wegner, the guy who first said that was the case back uh, I think it was around 1917 and was semi-disgraced for promoting it. So uh, I was there when a, a very major scientist at Princeton declared, wow, it is true. So what, uh, what Neil deGrasse Tyson said, the good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe it, uh, which leads us also to another lecture by Crichton we can talk about in the second half of our show, is environmentalism a, a religion? Because a religion is not something you, it's always true. It's, it's entirely up to the uh, individual attitude toward things. Well, we'll explore that idea more in the second half of our program, Jay. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after the break. Well, my fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, you were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. 
Well, it's good to be back. Uh, I hope our listeners are enjoying the show. We're certainly enjoying doing it, getting to chat with each other about uh, things we've spent our life studying, science uh, and engineering is a delight and being able to tell what we see as uh, more accurate than what you're getting in uh, social media and, and in the mainstream media all the time. Unfortunately, environmentalism really became a religion more than anything else in the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, it seems like the country, many people in the country have moved away from conventional religions and environmentalism has become theirs. And uh, we're going to write another article on that uh, in the coming weeks at America Out Loud, also based on another of uh, Michael Crichton's uh, lectures that he titled, uh, Is Environmentalism a Religion? And he pretty much uh, proved it was. And there have been many uh, studies about it. But a, a religion is something that you really have to take on faith. You cannot uh, prove a religion, certainly most of my friends that are deeply religion, born-again Christians, uh, they're convinced that things in the Bible and the, the, the dogma they've learned uh, is absolutely true, but they can't prove it. And science has to be provable. That's the difference. Yeah, so it's not a religion, or at least it shouldn't be. But, you know, when I talk to a lot of these people, they're so closed-minded. You know, I went to a presentation a few years ago it was put on by a group that were saying it was the end of snow in Canada. <laughs> what a joke. And they brought in world-class skiers who were all lamenting the end of snow in Canada. So I went to the microphone during the question period. I'd done a bit of research before the presentation, and I found that the average snow cover in North America had been increasing for decades. So I actually mentioned this to people. I said, well, you know, <laughs> it would be disastrous from the skiing industry if, in fact, the snow went away. But I don't really think that's a problem because it's been increasing for decades now. And, oh, man, were they mad? I had people in the audience actually stand up and shake their fists at me saying, go home, you know, get out of here. <laughs> and so it, it struck me as almost like going to an evangelic church and actually standing up and questioning the existence of God. I mean, you're right. The environmentalism to that extent has become really an extreme religion. I mean, it's not actually open to alternative ideas or new points of view. Do you find that? Uh, absolutely. And in fact, I mentioned in the first half of the show that uh, here in central Ohio, we had five inches of snow uh, on the 21st of April, the day before Earth Day. And I'll bet you if I had time to search the media on uh, the Internet, I would find an article that would blame that snow on global warming because yeah. it, it really no, doesn't matter now what goes on uh, with weather on the planet. If it's not good, they blame it on global warming, whether it's hurricanes or tornadoes or droughts or floods. It is ridiculous. But uh -huh. people have to under it's a construct to take away capitalism, to take away individual freedom and put the government in charge. Because let's face it, if man is causing problems with the climate, the government has to take over, not just our government, the United Nations, a one world government. Uh, the, the motivation is all political. I don't understand why. I don't know why these people are not happy with life as it is, but that would appear to be the case. 
Yeah, it's interesting. When I get asked what's driving the climate scare, that, of course, is a very major one and perhaps or probably the major one. But I think a lot of people actually, you know, it, they have their hearts in the right place. They just are ignorant of the facts. And of course, the major recipient of this billion dollars a day that goes to climate finance are these alternative energy companies, the wind and solar. So I think there's a pretty substantial profit motive as, as well. You know, I wanted to read another quick quote from Einstein because I think it goes back to this issue of truth, which is kind of interesting. He says, whoever undertakes to set himself up as a judge of truth and knowledge is shipwrecked by the laughter of the gods. And so I think, you know, what we should really do maybe is define truth. I mean, you remember Voltaire, he said, if you wish to converse with me, define your terms. So if it's okay with you, Jay, I'd like to go back to Plato, because Plato defined truth in a, in a certain way. But, but you had an interesting reflection of Plato and Aristotle comparing the two. Could you talk about that a little? Yes, I began my career, wow, over 60 years ago, as a uh, studying groundwater hydrology. And I went back to the history of how people thought water in the ground occurred. And uh, there were two very diverse uh, opinions on it. First, let me remind people, there were three great Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, that go back in the order of three, 400 years uh, BC. Uh, Socrates was the first, and Socrates uh, trained Plato, and Plato trained Aristotle, but they de very different views. The people are generally familiar with the Socratic method, which is kind of teaching students by asking questions and making them figure out their answers themselves. Plato had a very different view. I mean, he would come up with ideas out of thin air, and uh, if he believed in them, that was it. Uh, Aristotle, his student, realized that if he couldn't find uh, real-life in incidences of things, if he couldn't find real uh, data, then uh, he would not accept something as being truthful. And it came uh, to me studying the, the various uh, ideas and theories of how did water get under the ground? They had two very different views. Uh, Plato uh, decided that the water in the ground was just air that was uh, condensing to water. Uh, Aristotle uh, believed that the water underground came from the oceans and the, uh, the salt was uh, was figured out, was filtered out. Uh, believe it or not, they were both wrong. And, and those theories were put forth 300 plus years BC. And it wasn't until the 17th century that a French scientist uh, figured out that rainfall was adequate to not only fill the rivers and lakes, but to sink into the ground and fill the pores between uh, rock. So uh, the development of science moves very, very slowly. And no matter what theory some people uh, pick up, unless you have real empirical uh, proof and data, you, you've got to recognize it's, it's not truth. You hope it's near truth, but you're constantly searching. Well, you know, it's interesting, Jay, that Plato defined truth in a way that's easy to remember. He said, truth was universal, necessary, and certain. 
Now that's easy to remember because that the abbreviation would be, would be UNC. And I always laugh because I think, well, that's the United Nations climate. So they're <laughs> saying it's un, unequivocal. Now universal, the point he makes is that truth applies everywhere and at any time or every when, as you might call it. You know, if it's true, it applies on Earth, it applies on Mars, it applies, you know, a hundred years ago. And like you were saying earlier, it's mathematics, two plus two equals four, or how does a queen move in a chess game? The second thing is it's necessary. It must be the way it is. There's no other explanation. In other words, it's unequivocal. <laughs> and the third one is it's certain. It's not a matter of probability. So do you think science fulfills these universal, necessary, and certain requirements? Well, it tries. I mean, no matter what your discipline is, you, you can come up with certain laws of, of science which are unequivocal, mostly because they've been tested for, for eons and the theory, the hypothesis holds up. But there are not really very many things like that. And that's why math is so important in science, because if you can't prove uh, something with mathematical equations that are, where, where you know all the variables in the equation, you can't absolutely be sure it's true. As I said earlier, there really are people trying to redefine gravity. That sounds very silly, uh, but it's true. And certainly they're trying to still prove uh, Einstein wrong in his theory of, uh, of relativity. So there, there aren't that many truths in science. We hold things to be true until we gain more knowledge and find that the truth uh, can be improved upon or changed, as uh, as we quoted earlier about continental drift, and I mentioned about the problems medically that uh, that change. Well, you know, Professor Goldman, the Lehigh University philosopher who teaches that course, Science Wars: What Scientists Know and How They Know It. He really goes into this truth issue quite a lot, and it's it's really quite intriguing. He pointed out that in the late 1990s there was something called the science wars in fact that's the main title of his course and here's what happened the hard scientists were saying to the social scientists oh you guys are a bunch of uh flops you know i mean we're finding truth about nature social science is all qualitative it's very fuzzy and so there was this war that was going on in the late 1990s between the hard sciences and the social science. And, and you know, it's interesting because one of the hard scientists wanted to sort of mock the soft scientists. And so he wrote a paper, which was completely nonsense, but he wrote it in such a way that it sounded really professional and it sounded, and he got it accepted in a social science journal and didn't tell people that it was absolutely nonsense until after they published it. And then he pointed to it and said, see, I got this nonsense in the social science journal. Anybody can do it. And it was a really kind of nasty war. And it actually leads me to what Professor Goldman talks about when he, he discusses, you know, what is science and, and what is it actually finding? And, and he points out that science is really educated opinions based on scientists' interpretations of observations. And as you know, Jay, ever since ancient times, philosophers have recognized that observations are subjective. They're, they're very opposite in a way of the UNC uh, in that it's actually particular, contingent, and has some degree of unknown, you know? So, I mean, our methods of observing are imperfect. Don't we all have biases that affect how we interpret what we see? 
you know, I'd like to throw in a, a, a curveball here because uh, all our listeners, I'm sure, uh, watch crime shows once in a while on TV. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that eyewitness testimony is the weakest of all testimony to uh, convict someone of a crime for the very reasons that you just just, just described. Uh, your eyes uh, have a bias, believe it or not. You see what you want to see. And, and in science, one of the biggest problems we have when people do experiments or, or do studies, they want to put more weight on positive outcomes than negative outcomes. And if you're doing experiments, failures are as important as successes. And yet, uh, most scientists, and especially today, maybe more than it was 50 years ago, put more credibility on the things that work out the way they want them to work out instead of when they don't work out the way they want them to work out. Yeah, exactly. For example, the climate alarmists, they see this correlation between CO2 and temperature throughout history. But what they don't see the places where it doesn't correlate. I mean, that's, you know, that really relates right back to the 17th century English philosopher, Sir Francis Bacon. He has the idols of the mind. And the one you're describing is the idols of the tribe, where we see patterns that don't exist, or we actually put more importance on positive things. You know, that's actually worth talking about, because this debate between different kinds of approaches to science, I think is really important. Bacon actually had four idols of the mind. I mean, the one you just described was idols of the tribe. And I'll just quickly list the other ones, idols of the cave, the marketplace, and the theater. And the, the cave was how we're affected as individuals due to our personalities and our likes. You know, for example, if you focus on human causes of climate change, you see causation everywhere, I guess. Right, Jay? Yes. But before you go any further, could you uh, describe uh, for... Uh, our listeners, uh, what Bacon meant by the term idols. Yeah, well, these are things that we bow to subconsciously so that we don't think about nature as it really is. We think about nature as we are to a large extent. In other words, we're influenced in how we see things. These are things that the mind actually does to our observations. Idols of the tribe is the first one you mentioned. Idols of the cave which are affecting us as individuals due to our personalities, our likes and dislikes. Idols of the marketplace, that's interesting. That is one which comes through language largely that is vague. And a good example is people you know, talk about climate change is real. To us, to you and me, we say, well, that's obvious. I mean, climate always changes. But what the UN means when they say that is their official definition of climate change. This is actually quite surprising because their definition in the Framework Convention on Climate Change, here's what they say climate change means. A change of climate which is attributed directly or indirectly to human activity that alters the composition of the global atmosphere and which is in addition to natural climate variability observed over considerable periods of time. So when they say climate change, really, Jay, I think what they're saying is man-made climate change, isn't that, isn't that yeah, right? Yeah, there's, there's no question about that, Tom. In fact, if you read the literature surrounding the United Nations Climate Change Panel, IPCC, uh, their mandate is not to learn what causes climate change. Their mandate is simply 
to study man's impact on climate, just exactly as you described. And so people have the wrong idea when they read uh, press releases that come out of the IPCC uh, reports that come out almost every year. They're not looking for the truth about climate change. They're only looking for evidence that shows man as an impact. And as I said, I started studying this well over 30 years ago. And what has amazed me from the beginning that people don't recognize the arrogance that they are presenting in trying to believe that man is more powerful than nature. We're, we are nothing compared to the forces of nature as to climate. And while there are certainly many credible scientists that believe that carbon dioxide has some small impact, all of them, 100% of them, will say it's insignificant. Now, if the impact is a, a decimal, many zeros to the right, many zeros from the right of the decimal, uh, why even consider, why are we still chasing a number that has no meaning at all uh, as to the Earth's thermostat? But uh, that's all that these uh, UN panels are doing, trying to pin down man's impact. And it is the height of arrogance that man has really an impact on nature as a whole. Now, we can impact a small area. We can change the climate of a small town by building buildings and roads, by uh, starting agriculture where it didn't exist. Phoenix was once a place where asthmatics went to uh, uh, get a breath of fresh air uh, with, without moisture. And the climate in Phoenix was much drier many, many, many decades ago. But when it became a popular resort, they built well over 100 golf courses, irrigated them all, and it stopped being the dry climate that had, had been uh, over a half a century ago. So humans can cause climate change over smaller areas than the whole With, earth. Without a doubt. We do that all the time. But we're talking about local areas that we can measure. The planet, no chance at all. You know, yeah. we were talking about sea level earlier and, and averages. I loved your early statement being in the program. You can't see an average. <laughs> yeah, It's a mathematical. Yeah thing. And uh, when I talk about sea level rise, I love to point out that there are places on the planet where the sea level is falling. My favorite one is Sitka, Alaska, a place that I have visited not too long ago. Yeah. So what's happening there? Why is it falling? I have no idea. <laughs> is it I, I the mean, land? The land is actually many, dropping or many, rising, I mean? It, it could be possibly some rising, but it's just the nature of ocean currents and so on. Uh, there is so much about the climate and, and things that we do not understand. It is far too complex for us ever to unequivocally say what is going on with the Earth's climate. Yeah, and everything we see is filtered through these idols of the mind. You know, the last idol of the mind is, is kind of interesting. I have an example. It's called the idols of the theater. And this is thinking erroneously because of what we were taught in school. You know, Jay, I taught a survey course at Carleton University. It was quite interesting because the students coming out of high school had been totally brainwashed on climate change. And so they were kind of stunned at first when they heard me talking about alternative points of view from people like you and Professor Patterson, because they had been thoroughly indoctrinated with this, with this last kind of idol, idol of the theater. Do you find that kids coming out of school, do they have an understanding of the broad 
uh, perspective on climate change, or are they all just worshiping this idol of the theater because of their education? They're doing exactly that, Tom. We've really lost a generation. When authorities tell us what the truth is and they punish people who disagree, progress stops. And, and we look at history, for example. Claudius Ptolemy, I mean, he had an Earth-centered system, but he pointed out that this was a model which actually worked for creating calendars and for making forecasts and for different kinds of observations. He, he never said that it was a real physical representation of the universe. And yet it's interesting that the Catholic Church, they made it gospel because they went back to the Bible and they found a place where Joshua was leading the Israelites in a war, in a battle, and he asked God to make the sun stand still. And God did, 24 hours according to the Bible, the, the sun stood still. So the Catholic Church took this as evidence that in fact the earth was stationary and the sun moved. And so indeed they adopted Claudius Ptolemy's uh, earth-centered system as the official doctrine and you know, when Copernicus uh, started to realize that in fact the earth wasn't the, the center of everything, he was afraid to actually bring it up for good reason. Because of course, when people con uh, contradicted the church in those days, you know, that was really dangerous. His book talking about the sun-centered universe was banned for 200 years. And you know, Jay, one thing you'd get a kick out of is when Napoleon visited Copernicus's birthplace in Poland, Centuries after Copernicus died, he was amazed that there was no statue erected to Copernicus because the church had still not forgiven him. <laughs> so, I mean, it strikes me that when authorities preach truth about science, I mean, doesn't that stop progress? Well, it certainly does. And I would guess that many of our listeners may not be aware that Galileo was imprisoned for the last seven years of his life by being a follower of Copernicus. It was a house arrest. He wasn't in a prison cell, but he was not allowed to move among the, uh, the population. He continued to do you know, great work on his own, but that's how powerful the church was. So there's quite a, a similarity to the authoritarianism of the church uh, ruling against people that did not believe uh, what the church put forth it's the same thing now. That, again, uh, supports the idea that environmentalism and climate change is a religion. Uh, it's not science at all. Uh, and again, I, I want to tell our listeners, I'm really very optimistic because I think they have gained so much power that they're, they're going over the edge and that the average person in America, the vast majority of people in America, are, are, are already waking up to the fact that the, the ideas they're putting forth, that they're reading, seeing, and hearing every day are, uh, are quite inaccurate. And uh, there's going to be a, a backlash. And, and in every way, we're going to see the average citizen uh, have something happen in their lives that they will see as negative and be a result of this, uh, this new administration. So uh, I'm kind of glad that they have total power now because I think they'll do more damage to their own party than they will do to the country in the next 18 months uh, before our next election cycle. So do you think we'll ever come to a time when people just laugh when they hear these absurd climate forecasts? Yes, I, I actually do. I think we will get to that point, but I'll also say they'll replace it with something else. I mean, 
the uh, the alarmists and the left, the people that don't like our country. Uh, I don't really understand that attitude. It's the greatest country on earth by every means. I mean, people are pouring in our border and they're letting them all in in hopes that they'll uh, vote for them in the next election and they'll quickly get uh, voting rights. But uh, I think uh, it's not that long down the, the road, uh, 10 years or so, I believe, that people will be laughing at man-caused global warming. For one thing, I think within 20 years, we'll be fairly sure that we're cooling and not warming and we'll, we'll handle it. But there'll be something to replace it. There will always be a theory, a hypothesis that will be put forth to scare the people they want to rule. Fear rules. So when it isn't climate change, I don't know what it'll be, but there'll be something else. So there, there won't be life on Earth without a, a, a group of people trying to scare the public to do their bidding or install their kind of politics. And, you know, one thing we should reference, Jay, if people think that what we're saying is, is not substantiated by science, people can take a look at the climate change reconsidered reports of the non-governmental international panel on climate change. And the website for that we'll put right underneath our discussion today when it's put on podcast. It's climatechangereconsidered.org. And what they'll see is that there are thousands of peer-reviewed scientific papers in major journals that essentially don't agree with the climate scare. I mean, surely it's time to open up the debate about climate change before we go any further spending another nickel. Uh, Tom, I want to pre-emphasize one word you just said that people might think is an exaggeration. You said there are thousands of articles. You are not exaggerating. Uh, the Heartland Institute put out uh, three volumes, almost 3,000 uh, pages of very brief articles. There really are over a thousand articles. The amount of data uh, supporting the fact that man is not controlling the climate and that fossil fuels are are a, a wonderful boon to society. There are just there's so much data. If people want to read it, if they don't want to, uh, they can listen into us every week. We won't always be talking about climate change. In fact, uh, next week we're going to try to explain to people a subject. We don't think they understand, and that's what woke is and has it. It has a historical background going back to the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. We're going to cover a lot of topics, so if they don't want to read, they can tune in to us every weekend and on our podcasts. So, signing out from the other side of the story. 